And they're incredible challenges. And I would say they're challenges that you can be really creative with. It's not a case of being less creative. I would say, ironically, I think you can be more creative just because they are of the most pressing importance of this epoch, this period. Hey, welcome to Green Canvas. My name is Toby Carpenter, and this podcast is all about creative individuals helping to tackle the climate and environmental crisis through their work. We'll be talking to a wide range of creative practitioners, from designers working with sustainable materials to artists and photographers exploring global warming. We'll learn more about their work, how they use their skill sets for positive environmental change, and also what tips they have for you to utilize your own creativity and help the world build the sustainable future our planet needs. So stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy and find Green Canvas useful. Our guest today is Brendan McFarlane, a leading architect and co-founder of the Paris-based architectural firm Jacob & McFarlane. Jacob & McFarlane is a multidisciplinary architectural agency with a focus on environmental transition and digital culture. They are the initiators of the French chapter of the Architects Declare Climate and Ecological Emergency, which is a network of architectural practices committed to addressing the climate and biodiversity crisis. They also recently won the C40 Reinventing Cities Awards for their projects Living Landscape and the Energy Plug, both of which we speak about in this episode, alongside an imaginary project called Tonga Above, which rethinks the Tongan capital of tomorrow after it becomes inundated with rising sea levels due to climate change. Jacob and McFarland's projects have been exhibited in museums around the world, including the V&A Museum in London, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, Moscow's Museum of Architecture, Tokyo's Mori Art Museum, as well as the Pompidou Centre in Paris. Outside of his day-to-day role, Brendan McFarlane has also taught at the Bartlett School of Architecture and the Architectural Association in London, as well as teaching at the Special School of Architecture in Paris and Southern California's Institute of Architecture and Graduate School of Design. If you'd like to see some of Jacob and McFarlane's work, we have a few links in the show description that take you to some of the projects we speak about in this episode. And so without further ado, here's our conversation and I hope you enjoy it. What drew you to architecture? When did you decide that you wanted to be an architect and why? I think the background to becoming an architect was really growing up in New Zealand. That was quite important in terms of its influence on a number of levels. One is that the landscape is incredibly important for New Zealanders. It's uh, very uh, physical and uh, constantly in a sense, a changing climatically landscape uh, in terms of the light, in terms of the weather. So it's actually a a very rich environment that you grow up on. You don't really sort of understand that until you live outside of New Zealand. And thinking back to my childhood, I think that had a huge impact. And also the, because of that, you know, you get very strong contrasts, not only physical formal contrast, but you get, as I said, through light, through weather conditions, there's never a light, soft touch like there is in other countries in the world. So in a sense, it would be one of the first big impacts would be kind of landscape. And the other one would be also a kind of interest, very interest, early interest as a, as a kid. Was, I was very interested in the history of New Zealand in terms of the old buildings and uh, the cities and the towns and was very drawn to the old houses. 
And so I was constantly looking, drawing, exploring uh, a lot of you know, 19th century architecture that was both empty or, or about to be demolished because you know, we had a number of very influential things on my childhood. One was a, a motorway that came through Wellington, which is the city I primarily lived in as a, as a kid. And the motorway actually went through a swathe of the old part of the city and destroyed a very important part, a uh, section with a lot of old houses. And so, in fact, for a period of time, uh, as a family, we would explore this part of Wellington. It really became like a ghost town. As people had moved out, um, they'd left these old houses to, uh, in a sense, exposed, smashed windows, open roofs, etc. until the bulldozers moved in and, and cleared all of those away and actually cut into the landscape and created you know, a major motorway into a city which was basically 19th century beforehand. So we saw that as a, as a kind of a shock uh, to a city and we saw it as actually something which was pretty negative in a way. Uh, and looking back at, in retrospect, of course, we were right. But then, of course, it was considered to be a heroic natural, normal uh, evolution of a city needing a more, you know, faster, uh, bigger, etc. And uh, as a family, we saw it as a kind of a destruction of uh, not only buildings and houses, which were actually quite beautiful, but also a whole environment. So that vision of a kind of the, the in, a, in a way, the capacity of uh, people to also create beauty, but also destroy it, was very much embedded in my vision as a kid. And I think I was very attracted to the idea of, of doing something about that in whatever way. I'm not sure how that would happen, but it certainly had a big impact, impact on me. So that would be sort of like, in a sense, uh, late 60s, early 70s, that sort of formation, which very much actually paralleled a kind of change in the world anyway at that period in time. All of a sudden, the world was becoming interested in what we had, what existed, and uh, and was very much aware of what we were what we were losing. You know, the seventies was very much about those kinds of sudden changes. So, and, uh, so I think I was very much born in, into that period and very much a product of that. So, architecture for me grew out naturally. Architecture, in a sense, an interest in architecture grew out of those kinds of influences. And in terms of your architectural career, what's a brief timeline of your journey to, to where you are now? Well, the brief timeline just would be that I grew up in, as I said, in New Zealand, went to school and architectural school in Auckland, uh, spent two years there, then went across to Sydney, spent another couple of years in Sydney, Australia, then went to uh, a school called SIARC in Southern California, graduated with a first degree in SIARC. So in fact, what I was doing, I was school hopping until the third school, which I graduated from. All of that I did because I wasn't really satisfied with an architectural education. The way educationists were sort of seeing, you know, your classic five years stuck at a table, you know, going through this process. I hated that. I really wanted to travel and see things at the same time. Uh, as well as being a student. And I guess I was a, very much a precursor of this idea of a kind of, um, you know, uh, what really has become somehow more, in a way, accepted idea, certainly in the European education system. Students can move around and do uh, years out, years in. You know, there's a lot more flexibility. When I did it, it was really me doing it, you know, and actually sort of leaving these schools 
and then going on to the next school and dragging, you know, dragging through the curriculum. But the thing is that I graduated from uh, California in Los Angeles, and I went to work with a bunch of very interesting architects. Uh, and was very lucky then to go back in, invited by those architects back into SIOP to teach as well myself. So I was here, I was sort of teaching graduate students much older than myself at a very young age. So I actually got to do some kind of extraordinary experiences. And then after that, uh, later uh, going to Harvard and doing a second degree in architecture, a master's degree. And then after that, moving on to Europe and uh, getting to France. And eventually after working with people, here, architects in France, setting up the practice with Dominic, my partner, as we have today. And during this journey, have you always felt a desire to create sustainably focused architecture? I think it's interesting. I think sustainable is a term, obviously, which has come into place. It wasn't there, let's say, 10 years ago. It wasn't there 15 years ago. What we were doing, though, we were very much influenced, in a sense, by certainly the numeric revolution. We were very excited by that in the early 90s. And uh, one of our first projects, George, the restaurant, was very much influenced by the idea of building with numeric technology, both designing it and building it. And so the digital revolution had a huge impact on us. We saw huge freedoms in that. And so that, you know, that's certainly one of, the, one of the areas that we took off. In a way, our office took off at that level. And we developed interests that were much more specific. And we developed really an identity at that point. And that would be in the early 90s. And at Jacob and McFarlane, I read that you have a focus on environmental transition and digital culture. Yeah, it's an, it's an, it, is, it is a transition, as you say. Um, and to finish that point about the digital, the digital was preempting, in a sense, also this idea of sharing data and sharing information. And I think there's, you know, all of that's come about with accountability accountability of polluting the air polluting the oceans population growth massive population movements right through to you know predicting of course today um you know uh, models of how covid potentially started and it's you know uh, let's say it's modeling its impact on the world and how it's moved around and how it's mutated etc so that's in a sense it's part of the same thing in many ways, that, that interest in data, that interest in mapping and, you know, uh, recording and analyzing. And I do think that's actually all, as much as it is, let's say, medical or as much as it is, let's say, sociological, political, it's also very architectural. You know, all of those means of communication and analysis have somehow merged. And so, in a way, the issues of sustainability, of course, just part of that, you know, so it's part of a continuum. The fact that we talk about sustainable today, as I was saying, is not, it's, it's part of something which actually is very much coming out of other areas and other interests. Of course, today, the big thing that about with climate change, you know, we're seeing that these, this mod, these models of predicting the future are actually vital for us and predicting, let's say, heat impact and how that will impact the way we live in our cities and how we have to let's say, create a new architecture uh, or architectural responses for those kinds of impacts. Those, that modeling, that uh, collection of data, that collection of information becomes vital, becomes very important. So we're no longer really working as, as intuitive sort of individuals, isolated, uh, kind of creatively 
isolated individuals, but we're very much aware now of becoming part of a, a you know, a, a sort of a, a much bigger group of creative individuals that uh, are working on these issues. So we're, you know, we're connected today. We weren't connected before. Is it a 50-50 balance between environmental transition and digital culture? Yeah, I think it's all part, as I said, I think it's all part of the same thing. And I don't think one uh, really, it's not a kind of easily divisible thing. Somehow all of these things have become enmeshed and part of, I mean, they're all in a way somehow, uh, there's a kind of imbrication of all of these sort of interests together, working together. Now, how, how, at what point in which in time do they, some of them take over and become slightly more important? It really depends. I would say that, uh, you know, it's difficult to predict. You don't really predict. You can only, you, as an architect, you really work mostly on issues that are probably fairly right in front of you. I'm extremely interested, of course, about how things could evolve, um, but knowing full well that they don't necessarily evolve the way one thinks or predicts they're going to evolve. And um, it's so very difficult to give you a kind of an answer of percentage. I would think there's, there's tendencies or there's intuitions. Uh, you know, uh, you don't lose your intuitive aspect in all of, all of this, you know, let's say, data mining or collection or working with information. You also have very strong intuitions as a designer or as, or as a creative character. And I think those, those become even more important as we can see that as we move into a kind of an age where everyone has the capacity to work with the same information, somehow then what is it that makes you as a creative individual in any way useful somehow or different within all of that, you know, and that becomes quite interesting. You know, I think you're, you know, your capacities become maybe more apparent or you certainly want to kind of be more creative in a world that also, you know, in a way, you know, the, role, the whole role of an architect anyway is, is, is changing quite radically. And for the architect that I was assuming that I would become to the, uh, the architect that I am today, you know, you're, you're completely different people somehow. So this idea of a kind of an evolving thing that you can predict is not easy. I, and, I, and I think the, therefore, you know, the, the idea of how much is, let's say, sustainable environmental based and how much is, I would say most of our work is, is uh, today, if I was able to try and answer it in a very simple way, I would say most of it is impacted. But, you know, we ask ourselves always these questions of today, right now, where are the materials coming from? You know, what is the impact of my touch on this site for on a lot of levels? You know, there's a there's a kind of growing awareness that we are that we have now on each project that is more and more to do with, you know, obviously the impacts, the environmental impacts, the materials where they're coming from, as I said. Uh, and what those materials would do over time and what the building may be, you know, in 10, 20, 30 years, you know, how it could evolve, et cetera, or de-evolve. And those are, those are part of your discussions within your own team, but they're also very much part of the discussions with clients now. You know, they're very much aware of the issues of recycling, what they can do. You know, we're working on a project right now that there's an old building next door which is being demolished and can uh, uh, the, and by the same client that wants was thinking about taking an amount of building materials from that and making this completely new project uh, right next door to it. And of course, we're involved in those kinds of discussions. 
So, but, but in the, you know, you find all in the, the theory of that is all very good, but then really putting it into practice along the lines of responsibility, you know, uh, guarantees, etc. then it becomes a whole different ball game. But um, nevertheless, anyway, you know, obviously we're, we're working with a much more in, enmeshed complex world now than, than I would have thought beforehand. And what are the main, the most important factors in the creation or maybe the redevelopment of a, of a building to ensure that it's sustainably minded or has a, a positive carbon or neutral carbon impact? What are the most important factors that you consider? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole ilk of issues that come into play. You know, uh, a carbon neutral po- project today. Obviously, I think one of the biggest things in approaching, you know, it's something and something we've always done is being, being trying to come up with an architecture which is actually quite specific to its site and its situation. And that we've been, if you go back into our, to the things we've talked about, you know, over the last sort of 20 years, we've always talked about that, you know, not parachuting projects into sites, but actually developing projects very much out of sites and developing them out of all sorts of conditions, not just environmental or let's say conceptual, contextual, but also social, uh, economic, you know, you know, as an architect, anyway, you need to work with all of these different aspects in order to come up with a response and a response, let's say, that's not only interesting, but sensitive. And so I think, for, you know, that's the same thing for, let's say, trying to develop a project where you're reducing the carbon footprint of the project. There are many different ways in which you can do this and not all of them will work on a particular site. It's not a case of just applying all of those, you know, sort of like 10 principles to a site, it's a case of approaching the sites uniquely and thinking about working with you know the unique situations on a site. Some sites are like heavily polluted. So how do you work with that pollution? That's just one aspect. In terms of your material choice, complicated, interesting, but complicated. Right now, you know, we're seeing that wood is actually extremely expensive and has become in, in the shot up to be, you know, in Europe anyway, the prices have gone up, let's say 40%. All of a sudden, and that's, you know, let's say in the last year, due to a number of uh, uh, crises around the world, more human, human-based human than uh, natural-based. And all of a sudden, that has an impact on the marketplace for the price of wood. So projects that you've been looking at in the past that were quite, let's say, interesting to build out of wood, economically then become difficult. So what do you look for as an alternative material? knowing for well that wood is really interesting to reduce the carbon footprint. So all of a sudden, how do you accommodate for that? If you can't use wood for its absorbent carbon aspect, which we know it's one of the best materials for, then, you know, what other materials can we work with? Or what other ways can we reduce? You know, I know that in Iceland, we talked very much about the idea of um, introducing the low carbon or zero carbon uh, job site. And we could do that in Iceland. Again, a unique situation. Iceland, because of their, you know, the volcanic and, you know, geothermal energy, we could do that. We could propose actually absolutely zero diesel, zero gasoline-based job site and all, everything electric. And totally, so we got the job site, a miracle job site down to zero in terms of our calculation. We've yet to do it. So there's, that's, the, that's an aspect of a kind of an approach. 
The next question is about the issue of materials, which I think is interesting because you have a question there. How do you pick your materials? What's the, the process for it? That's a kind of interesting thing because we find ourselves at a kind of crossroads. On the one hand, we're very much aware of the kind of materials which are, in a way, low impact on nature. But at the same time, we are not people that, you know, creators that are, as I said, sitting around just ticking all the boxes and, you know, applying the same thing as a kind of wallpaper of an answer every time. We're actually very interested in concepts and ideas. And the, it's the ideas and the concepts which really dictate for us the choice of materials. So it may well be on some sites that we don't actually end up necessarily using uh, a very sustainable material, just because the concept has been too important to push through. Maybe there's a cultural concept which just takes precedence over this idea that we're working all on every project always with this idea of reducing carbon footprint. So that, you know, it's not a contradiction, but it's, um, it's also trying to remain, trying to be open and remain open. And I think also let the projects be what they want to be. Every project has, has a voice or you somehow are involved in, it's not a magical process, but somehow you are involved in a sort of birthing process in architecture. And that voice in a way has to come out. And I think it's very difficult to apply, you know, again, you know, we're very, very easy in this world, you know, and it's a human, uh, favorite human condition in a sense to go from one way of approaching, uh, making things to another. And it's often very black and white and rather dull. So we're, you know, it's, a, it's um, I would say I'm very much aware of that kind of crossroads condition. You know, you've got to be very much aware that some projects don't necessarily want to be the most sustainable thing on earth because they have other cultural conditions going on. And uh, I think that's what we need to be very careful at, uh, you know, just generalizing too much as well. How does the design process differ when it's a sustainably focused project? And so you mentioned that the idea and the concept often takes precedence, but when the concept is a sustainably charged concept, how does the design of a building then differ? If it, is, if it really is a, a sustainable issue at the very core, then obviously you do, they do take precedence and you do work with them. It's not, it's, one doesn't deny them. Uh, so if they're sustainable ideas that could potentially help a site or help a situation, we'll put those into the foreground. Having said that, uh, as I said, I think, I think the worst architecture in the world is formulaic and we have a huge amount of formulaic sustainable architecture in the world right now, which as I said, is just, it's wood and a lot of plants. And, um, that also is culturally, it's very, very dull. So I think you need to be really aware of, and, you know, I think the best, obviously the most interesting work, I think, is the work which is able to keep its conceptual teeth, but also be sustainable. And I think it's up to the creators to also try and find a way of uh, differentiation within the, the world, you know, of sustainability. I'm sure, in a sense, the interests are uh, to not to, you know, converge, but to diverge, to explore and, and um, test language. I think that's, a, that's, in a sense, one of the biggest challenges of this period, you know, is to actually not end up looking the same, but actually let the 
let the conceptual challenges of projects often become apparent. You know, we don't have all the answers. We may never have all the answers. And in fact, we probably, and it's probably rather dull if we do have all the answers. And I think that architecture has a role there. You know, we're not just doctors and we're partially doctors, but we're also doctors for ideas and psychology and creating, let's say, social conditions and a lot of the invisible stuff that, we're, that we haven't really talked about in this session. But there's all the invisible stuff, which is maybe even more important. And there's a world we haven't even gone there yet. You know, we're very much in this, you know, the discussion is about reducing the carbon footprint, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I would, I would hesitate to say that the discussion should be, um, you know, there's a huge number of issues out there which have to be also part of an architectural project and discussion. And I think if you start to bring those in as well, then you'll find that I think this idea of holistic or sustainable becomes a lot richer and it becomes a lot more complex. And therefore, don't end up being architects that just have a, 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 as I said, like a doctor, you just have a prescription at the end. But we actually raise the issues and we, and we, in a way, we fabricate, we make apparent the challenges and the contradictions. And I think that's uh, that to me is a is a is a key role of architecture. So I think that you know um, we need to be very careful when we're talking about all of these issues is to not forget our role there. We have a role in a way to wake people up, to you know, to uh, to jolt them, to open, uh, to you know, show the contradictions, to open the open the, the challenges. And I think that would be, I think that will be a kind of a, even a more interesting future that, that we can go into. Would you expand a little bit on these invisible factors? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I just think, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, well, for one thing, you know, I think that there's very interesting areas that we're getting through into, uh, you know, for example, in, if you want to look at it technically, you could say that uh, the areas of virtual reality and augmented reality are actually two, in a way, realities that we've been dealing with for a while uh, i know our office has been interested in them and uh, we did an exhibition in berlin called uh, augmenting the invisible and that was chosen as a title because it was very much about saying well no there's a lot of stuff which we're not seeing in architecture which actually is just as important and um as well as you know is what you see is what you physically see there's a lot of invisible aspects which are probably even more interesting and so is something like uh, is something like virtual reality or something like augmented reality, are they technologies that get us closer to those kinds of issues? Maybe. Um, you know, there's, as I said, there's, there's many conditions that come in to make a space. There's not, uh, there's, it's not what we necessarily see, but it's how do you feel when you enter a space or you walk down a corridor or you're sitting in a space long enough? What, are, what is the sensorial quality that the space gives you? not just a visual thing, but it's also a physical sensorial thing that you can have with the space. But then beyond that, beyond whether it's a cold or a warm or a, or a sensorial perception, beyond that, it also enters into this idea that buildings also have their own, you know, psychologies, you know, and their own moods, their own atmospheres. And, um, that's something which, let's say, we've, we've always been aware of, but 
it's something which we've never really touched on so much in terms of working with it and deliberately working with it in projects. And I think more and more uh, these aspects are, are also where there's a huge amount of interesting work to be done. So that's why when I'm talking about the invisibles, I'm talking about those, those aspects of architecture. It's not just the kind of, you know, it's, the, it's not the, the necessarily the physical, spatial understanding of a building or, you know, the experience of that, but it's something a lot more complex. And uh, so that's what I'm uh, talking about. Okay. And I wanted to talk a bit about your project, Living Landscape, and how did the idea for Living Landscape unfold? And what were the main concepts behind its development? And also, I'm interested to hear at what point in the development stage or construction stage is it? Or is it just an idea at this point? Uh, the idea, where does it come from? Essentially, it's like a lot of our work, it comes from a lot of um, you know, struggle, like most creators. We go through a certain struggling process of the program was actually something which the developer, the, these kind of competitions, they are run by a group called C40. And um, C40, of course, has been responsible for really creating a, an incredibly innovative way of putting together architecture with developers, with creators, and making it a very transversal project. And um, they are competitions. The, the sites are sort of um, worldwide once a year. And uh, a year before, we won two sites. We won for Paris and we won for essentially living landscape for Iceland. Why I'm uh, taking the time to say all of that is because they're the model that you, know, you put together, first of all, is that you don't have a developer coming to you. You as an architect go out and find developers, people, you know, um, to put together as a group. So you find your people that can finance it, that can run it, and uh, can conceptualize it. So it makes for a new way of making projects. It's not an easy way. In fact, it's quite a hard way in some ways. But what's interesting is it forces everyone to be a lot more organic from the beginning. Meaning that if you have a site, uh, you have people right at the beginning talking about the pollution levels, how you can build on that or not, or clean it or whatever. You have a developer which is um, looking at the model uh, from an economic level, but is on board essentially because you've gone out and found them and asked the, uh, them if they're interested in building a, uh, making a building which meets the kind of um, challenges that climate change has brought about on this planet. So normally they're a, a fairly turned on, switched on, interested developer in this subject. And then there's you. And then, of course, you bring in a lot of experts in different fields. And so we found them really great projects to work on in that sense. And generally, the experience has been a really positive one in, in working in this way. But with a large group of people, it takes a lot of time. And you go through a lot of iterations. And uh, so Iceland, of course, went through the same kinds of iterations. You know, we knew that we we're on a brownfield site. We knew that uh, we had a, a thing called the Green Line, which is in Reykjavik. They have a big problem of how to expand the city. They can't go towards the sea, of course. They cannot go back in towards what is a, an airport right in the heart of the city, which will probably be given up sometime soon but then will probably become quite rightly in a kind of an ecological zone park etc and they can't go really the only way they can go is back towards the east 
And so uh, they have this green thing called the Green Line, which they haven't built yet, but it's in the planning stages. And it's a very exciting project for Icelanders because most of them live in the, the urbanized parts of Iceland. And most of them have cars. And most of those cars are fossil fuel cars. So, so much for, you know, an incredibly beautiful, clean, ecologically important part of the planet. The irony, a little bit like New Zealand, is we've held on to our cars until death. And, uh, and Iceland, it's the same way. And convincing the population that they actually have to get out of their cars, abandon them, and take up public transport has been a big challenge. It's never really happened. With the Green Line, of course, is this project of, of meeting that challenge with an electrical tramway, which will move linking the most extreme, extreme suburbs, including the new suburb that we're one of the buildings of hundreds which will be built in the near future, but we're one of the first ones. And we're right at one of those tram stops. So building our project is linked in also to a bigger infrastructural question of this tramway for the city and for Iceland. And anything that happens in Reykjavik is sort of happens for Iceland. So that uh, the impact of this is quite extraordinary. So we, and I'm mentioning all of this because where does the idea come from? It's tied into very much what are some of, some of the underlying concepts. One of the underlying concepts, which is really important behind the project, is it's not just a building and it's not just trying to put forward the idea that people can live around a natural landscape or make a natural landscape somewhere on the planet and everyone can benefit from the clean air and a quiet space on the inside of a building. But that it's in this case, this building is linked into the screen infrastructure, which is hugely important for Iceland. And one of the wonderful experiences about doing this kind of, kind of competition was to find out after we won it that our project was used by the city in order to put forward the argument as to why the green line was vital and important. It wasn't just a new way of moving. It also was a new way of living connected to the line. The idea that you could live a long way outside of the city, but by public transportation be in the heart of the city in so many minutes and make that an exciting option. As I said, to you, we had to be part of something to propose to Icelanders that they could, they could actually leave their car behind and use public transportation. The city won the approval for the Green Line package because of its relation as an, to give an image of that kind of uh, way of living they used the building, the living landscape building, as the iconic image to promote the idea. And so we were in a very exciting moment where, you know, I met the mayor at one point of Reykjavik who said to me, by the way, the project was able to get us through, get it okay for the next step in this infrastructural thing. So it's, that's really exciting for an architect who's designed the building to hear that it actually has a massive impact on winning forward a larger piece of green infrastructure for a city. And so um, we knew that it was connected during the competition. We knew that it was going to be connected to this green line. So one of the concepts was in, in, in terms of building the stop, we also knew that people would get on and off. And it was very much about entering the building or walking under the building through a pathway, through the landscape of living landscape and into another urban area of more buildings.
So we knew our building has a, had a kind of passageway aspect as well. So um, that was an underlying thing. Hence, it's a little bit like an octopus at the underside of the building where it lifts up and drops down and lifts up. So people, the public can walk through the building, the landscape at the bottom, appreciate that inner garden, but keep on moving into another area of the city. So we imagined that that was certainly that started the idea rolling that this thing sort of would have an underface. And as we came up to the top of the building, this top face would become really important. This idea that the, the green landscape roof again emerging from our earlier work in the docks of Paris, where it was really one of the first times in Paris we'd introduced a green landscape roof into the urban situation, made it accessible to the public and show people in Paris what they can really, they can have fun with their roof. And so here, in this case, it's not accessible to the public, but it is accessible to the people living in the building, very much um, influenced by an earlier project, which was the docks of Paris. But of course, the problem in uh, Iceland, we don't have trees in the sense that we do in Europe. And so any tree materials need to be bought in. So all of those factors have to be weighed up when you're doing these carbon calculations, because of course, to prefabricate the wood off in Europe and bring it in by boat, of course, involves a certain, you know, you, you lose brownie points in a sense on that, but only of course, to win them back in making the, the whole project as, as carbon neutral as possible. And as I said, um, you know, at an earlier point, this idea of this coupled with also um, the fact that Iceland has clean hydro energy and uh, thermal energy, volcanic energy, uh, it's fantastic in terms of how we can bring the carbon footprint down of these buildings in Iceland. We already have just a huge foot in the door. Because of that, the irony is that Icelandic people like New Zealand is a little bit less than New Zealand, but we've tended to be pretty comfortable with ourselves. The idea that we work already, you know, a good chunk of kind of clean energy and, and producing it. But of course, we just can't be like that anymore in the world. We all, we all have to work together and we all have to get the, the carbon footprint down. So um, Iceland, you know, the living landscape has a lot of interesting aspects that came to play in. You know, it sounds like it. And so at the moment, are you still in, are you still making iterations to the project before it goes into construction? Yeah, to answer, essentially, you're right. To answer your, your last question, which was, where are we today? We are in the process of trying to build the thing. We are in the, pro you know, because of COVID, because of everything slowed down, of course. We know that we're in an urban phase uh, of approval by the city. Like a lot of things, you know, in Icelandic culture, a lot of it's public vote. So you go through a lot of public uh, forums, you know, in terms of the projects, the urban pro the larger urban project being voted in now our project being voted in. So we need to go through, we're in the process right now of all of that until we then get the green light and then we can kick off. Does it happen often that sometimes you might get very far in a planning process and there's lots of iterations and it has to go through lots of stages of approval and then all of a sudden there's a, a rejection and then the building cannot happen. Does that happen often? Uh, yes, absolutely. It does happen often. I mean, I'm just, when I say yes, of course, I'm talking to, you know, most architects on the planet. We all go through the, you know, the, the hard experiences of uh, having to go back in, rework something, bring it back in again, etc. And these public forums can be quite, they're, they're a good thing because essentially the public wants to know what they're getting. 
and that they're going to live with this thing or nearby this, you know, this project or this urban project, etc. It is vital that people have their say and talk about it. But of course, we get to the point, you know, now where, you know, every millimeter counts, you know. And so there's a sort of, there's a brilliant democracy that happens, but at the same time, it can be, as most architects know very well, it can be very painful because in a sense, you, you open all the floodgates to all sorts of comments open, the goodies and the not so goodies, and you've got to deal with it all. So of course, it becomes, in a sense, it can become a very painful process. So, you know, it's a, it's a nego- all of these things are a kind of massive negotiation. Yeah, I had a couple more questions about the, the makeup of living landscape. And one of them was, it was about the local ecosystem, which is composed of earth and rocks and water and plants. And, and I'm interested to hear a bit more about this and how the project enables the local ecosystem to thrive. Yeah, um, we're working with uh, a local landscape architect, the, probably the most famous one, the most important one in Iceland, or well, Iceland's tiny. So when you say the most famous, it's kind of everyone laughs in Iceland. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, you mean my cousin's brother. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, and that's what makes it really brilliant to work in Iceland because everyone does know each other and it's a very close-knit community. And it's, I think, for that reason, it's also a very, when they want to move fast, they can move very, very fast. They can be quite, quite agile. Something a little bit like New Zealand, it can take a lot of time. But then, you know, for political change, changes, sometimes they can be actually very fast because of the size of the populations. Um, where we are, you know, essentially, where we are with the landscape people is, is that we developed very much an idea of an indigenous landscape because the landscapes are so incredibly strong, incredibly uh, rich there. They tend to be also very low, you know, tasaki, you know, landscapes. They're not big treescapes. It's not a, it's a, it's a much more, um, you know, uh, ch- the climate is incredibly changing all the time. So the landscapes are quite rugged. But then once you go down in the scale, you find that there's a, there's a scale and there's an intimacy and there's a richness of that lower landscape which is just extraordinary you know i mean any photo of iceland that can be googled shows this you know and um what we tried to do was capture that kind of landscape within the territory of the the building the inner courtyard we're also working with trees so there are some indigenous low trees there are some trees that have been imported over the years which somehow have become part of part of the culture and we're going to work with that so when i say indigenous it doesn't mean absolutely everything a thousand years ago it does mean also stuff you know that's included that has become cultural we know of course to have some trees in within this courtyard is also quite vital the fact that when you're in the living room you can you can also have a certain depth to the landscape so it's a juggling exercise of all of that we have a, a water a natural water course that will be coming through the project, which will animate the project. We're also working with Landslag on introducing uh, into that natural water course, a volcanic water source. And uh, the, the volcanic water source, of course, in wintertime will be heated, which should give off a fantastic sort of natural mist condition within that landscape. And this is something not unusual to the work of Landslag. It's proposed by them here in this courtyard. It should be quite dramatic and, and quite fantastic to live around this kind of phenomenon. So that's, th- those are the ideas. And that, that idea of working with this 
most of, of what we can find in the natural habitat nearby, wherever we build living landscape in the future, in another area of the planet, it's very much to take, put a ring, put a ring around, introduce, preserve if we can, although we know very well it's very difficult to preserve, it's probably a remade landscape naturally in this space. We don't, little point uh, here is to say there is no parking at all under the building. There is no basement. It's soil straight down. The only reason we could get away with that is that the city absolutely insisted on no cars. Again, with this idea that we need to force people to use public transportation. But the, essentially this idea anyway, that we're bringing, nat natural, we're bringing naturally the water down into the landscape and down into the water table is a huge deal. And we would love to continue that in other parts of the world if we build, rebuild living landscape. Hence, it's, it's, it's a, a blur. Of course, it's a blur between the natural living landscape and man-made uh, idea of living around a landscape. And when you're creating a, a carbon neutral project like this, how do you calculate the carbon neutrality of it? Yeah, we have a, we, in the, no, it's really interesting. In the project, we have a calculation that runs during, it starts at the level of the uh, prefabrication of the project in Europe in workshops as prefabricated elements that are then put on a boat, brought to the site. It's all of the elements, it's, it starts there. It starts before the work site, during the work site, and then runs up to 10 years after the project. So it will carry on looking at the development and the evolution of the project. We're working again with, all of our team is local, and we're working with a very exciting uh, local engineering team, very big team, very big one in Iceland that is very interested in, again, using, working with Revit, and uh, working, you know, they've been developing a number of years ways of doing these larger accountabilities over many years, not just delivering a project, but actually being responsible for the accountability of that over many years after the delivery of the project, which we find really exciting. Okay, cool. I'm interested to hear more about the energy plug too, and this whole project. And to, to listeners, how would you describe the energy plug? What exactly is it? Yeah, it's interesting. The idea is that if you do have energy, can you plug it into an old existing building? The ones that are most interesting to use in this case are often old industrial abandoned buildings because they're no longer being used and they've run out of supposedly their first use. And they're in the state of are they going to be demolished or can they be reused in some way? And they're often, what's interesting about them is they're often, uh, they involve large volumes of space, which are not easy to develop for any, de any developer. At the same time, so the idea is that the new thing that you bring in is really like a plug. It's, and it brings in energy. And it does it in a way, the easiest thing to say about the new part to the building of the Playoff project in Paris is it really is like a, gigantic wooden glasshouse and it's attached or plugged into an existing old concrete 1930s structure which probably ran a fine line between being demolished and being kept the city kept it because of course historically they were very interested in the idea of if keeping uh these old energy buildings from the 20s 30s that were, were really part of paris's history in this case it was a huge park uh, uh a power station that 
made most of the power for Paris's metro system of the 1920s, 30s, 40s, right through to the 50s. And uh, it was, then it was abandoned. Uh, it became a, a part of it became a, a, a massive project for Luc Besson, the cinema uh, director, as a film studios. That was then uh, transformed and will be transformed into the headquarters, really, or the head central for the athletes of the 2024 Olympics here in Paris, around which will be built the Olympic Village. Our site is right on the edge of that Olympic Village. And so we hope the project will be finished by then as well. But the idea is that you've got, so you've got this kind of like ongoing mutation, transformation of an old industrial site and a very interesting one. So one of those buildings on the site was our building, which is, as I said, this 1930s thing. So we proposed an idea of plugging onto the side of it and the energy really comes from the sun. So we're south facing, it's a glass house that's south facing and takes in the sun. It transforms that of course into, we have a huge quantity of vertical urban farming inside run by a company called Gali in France, which is a very exciting group of urban farming among other specialities. And essentially what we found was that we were making enough hot air in that glass house, the south-facing glass house, because it's a huge vertical wall of glass, that we could bring, if we brought the air back into the old building um, by convection, then essentially we could keep the temperature of the old building relatively, you know, it's all relative, relatively comfortable for people not necessarily physically working in the old building, but for, to move through it. So our proposal was to really make it a sports center, a you know an art center for ongoing changing installations, a place where people can do conferences for the community within the community, etc. A community workshop space, etc. So they're active spaces; they're not passive spaces. But we're, what's very exciting about that is that we take really a historical building, and as I was telling you before, was that instead of just filling it filled with layers of insulation and reducing massively the the, the importance of the building, killing it really from the inside out or the outside in. Um, we were able to keep the beauty of the, the concrete, which is a, an extraordinary feat. Some people call it the, the cathedral, the building, but we we're able to keep that as a very exciting, like found object, but inject with the energy plug and a level of warmth into the building to keep it usable. That's interesting for a number of reasons. We can use less resource. Otherwise, we would have used a massive amount of, you know, somehow blanketing inside the old building to keep it going. And at the same time, uh, you know, we, we reduce costs, heating costs, because obviously the interests in, uh, in the world today are trying to find out if we can bring those levels of heat down so that we can actually use less energy. So this, this project proposes to, to bring those levels down, as I said, inside spaces, which are uh, not passive spaces. So the idea is that, and the idea could be then, it's, it could be any industrial building anywhere in the world with um, the capacity of plugging in a fairly interesting surface facing towards the sun in order to capture uh, heat in this case, it's a glass house. So, of course, we think it's very exciting to grow plants, grow food. And in the building, we also profit from that by having a cafe and a place where we can transform the food, etc. So that's really the idea behind the Play All project. The most 
interesting an idea. It's really, you know, the idea with these, and that was the other C40 projects. So they have a lot in common in the sense that the projects which are trying to really develop a prototype, a prototype for changing the way we live on this planet. So they're not singular projects. They're, project, they're singular projects, but they're, they're planetary in their implication, which is a really exciting way of working if you can as an architect today. And what was the process of, of designing this, this energy plug system like? Have you ever designed anything similar to it at all? Was it a totally new experience for you? We've, uh, we have, in a sense, if you look at the, again, if you look at the Docks of, project, uh, Docks of Paris, which was a project which is sort of like a precursor. The Docks, uh, we have a thing called the plug-over. And um, the plug-over is a precursor for the energy plug. This, again, this notion of plugging, this notion of using an exterior volume of space surface to at once blanket part of the project so you keep cozy, in a sense, what you have underneath it, but you actually profit from a void between you know, the urban volume, let's say, and the rest of the old existing volume. And in the docks of Paris, we found all of a sudden what was exciting here is that we could walk up the side of the building, we could develop another floor on top of the building, hence this idea of a, an accessible, a fifth facade, which becomes also a programmatic facade. That becomes very much a precursor, a number of years earlier, to, uh, to play on. So definitely, we, within the, the office, we definitely have a kind of a stepping stone aspect to the project in that way. So the, so the idea for the energy plug just naturally evolved from that previous project? Yes, I think so. This idea that we can keep an existing structure, a piece of infrastructure, we should try and build on them. Uh, the, the notion, what's really exciting in all of this is the notion of an adaptable city is absolutely there. Um, we were trying to do adaptable in Paris, you know, like eight years ago. The idea that you don't demolish, the idea that you keep, the idea that you build on, build out, build above, this notion of going up, and therefore, um, and approaching it in a symbiotic uh, notion. And I've come to realize that that's always been a fascination for me through, you know, biology, you know, university, but I was always fascinated about this. This idea that things can benefit from each other, that you don't have to lose in order for something to gain. I guess sort of somehow politically or socially, I've always believed that's somehow vital. You know, going back to what we were talking about, New Zealand, origins, things like this. I think that's really an interesting thing in architecture. The idea that you can build on an existing thing. And in a way, as a creator, I think the creation has even more sense and has more resonance. You know, the idea that, you know, something from the 30s or something from 1907, that, that, you, can, that you can extend off it, maybe do better because we live in another epoch now and we have other resources at hand. You know, it's a test. But the city is, the needs of the city or the needs of where we live on this planet have radically changed. And those changes have brought about these kinds of necessities. And you know, Paris was really a, a big wake-up call for us because on our on the program we always talk about this, but on the program for Paris they gave us two options. They said, "Listen, demolish the building of the docks or keep it. It's up to you as an equipe, as a as a group, as a, a group of architects during the competition." 
And our big argument, like we've always been interested in this idea of building off, taking, growing from the roots, using the roots of something and making a new plant in a way. And, you know, we went with the idea, absolutely trying to keep the structure, knowing full well that if we could build something off it, a new thing, we would have a very, very rich relationship between the two. And we would be sending out a really important message to a whole generation of other architects or other people or just people on this planet, which was don't get rid of what you have. What are you going to do with all this concrete? Uh, the irony of the whole thing is if you demolish all that concrete, you're going to empty one site only to fill, let's say, a landscape somewhere else. Think about it. You know, it's, it's pure madness. The energy that's gone into that before you even got there, the energy that you're going to bring into the site to get rid of the thing and get it to somewhere else, the level of air pollution that you're going to put back into this area that you're building now in. I mean, it's, you know, if so the irony is that I don't think a competition would be written that way today. And that's eight, nine years ago. We would, we would never see, I don't think, you know, touch wood, but I don't think you would see a program ever written for an architect today in that manner, just because we, the planet has shifted at radically forward very very fast to this idea that we must we must work with adaptation we must adapt now this is also a delicate matter because it means that at the same time as adapt we need to try and save what we have so we can't in adapting we can't it's not a case of giving up it's a case of fighting as well as adapting it's a complicated calculation we need to fight. We need to fight the fight. We need to bring the zero. We need to get to zero carbon. We need to bring the carbon footprint down in the world. We need to bring the heat of the planet down. But in order to do that, we, so that's a kind of, that's, you know, we need to uh, radically shift and work on new models. And these kinds of models are precursors for maybe even better ways of doing it. But there are important there are important precursors, and we must do that. In doing so, we also need to adapt the way we're living in our cities, the, adapt the way we're using energy, adapt the way we're using buildings. You know, there's a whole discourse. It's not just the discourse. There's a whole issue there right now in architecture, which is very interesting. That when you're designing, you can't design it anymore for just a program. You need to actually design it with the idea that there may be two, three lives going on in this building, different kinds of lives. You know, it may be a hospital, you know, in three years. It may be housing, you know, in 10 years. It may be, and if we ever come back to using offices the way we were using them, it may come back to reusing it as an office. So the notion of an adaptable is large. It's not just adapting an old city in the examples that I'm giving you, um, infrastructure that exists, but it also means that the way we're designing, we need to be uh, designing in adaptability, which of course is this idea of using, reducing radically the amount of resource that we've been over abusing on this planet and create more and sort of, in a sense, have make a more intelligent use of what we have. And is this the a growing trend across the board in architecture? The, the focus on evolving and adapting buildings. Yes, I think so. Absolutely. Okay, perfect. Oh, that's, that's, that's definitely good to hear. Yeah, I think it's a really important, I think it's a really important trend. It's, you know, it's part of definitely a direction which is very interesting. I'm interested here more about Tonga above. 
And when I was looking at Tongo above, I've never ever seen anything like it before. And for listeners, again, I'd like to just ask what exactly is Tongo above? And then I also have the, the question of how, how feasible is this project to become a reality in the future? Because it's so futuristic. It's unlike anything I've ever seen before. It's a really exciting project. You know, we're, it probably came out of working on the C40 projects because all of a sudden we could see that we, as architects, we needed to shift the way we usually approach things. In fact, we don't really approach. We've waited for people to approach us traditionally, and that has to change. You know, we can't be quiet anymore. Or, or architecture is sort of, in a way, where the chance of helping, you know, is taken away from us, I think. So somehow, as architects, we find, or our office finds, that we need to actually put ourselves in the heart of the beast in a way, or try and get ourselves close to interesting programs where there's real challenges that are, um, they have implications on a kind of planetary level. And um, I just think it's vital because I think that we need to, in a way, also make architecture responsive. And part of that kind of obviously propose creative solutions and solutions are really vital. I think, um, you know, there's a, there's a certain, you know, timidity in the pr- profession. Does, and that takes place in the form of repeating the way we've made architecture, you know, schools of architecture, styles, um, uh, movements. Well, in fact, I would say what's really interesting about this period, all of that becomes slightly put aside it's not as though there's not a school or there's not schools one could say that you know in a way creating wooden architect working with wooden architecture or working with sustainable issues in architecture of course becomes a way of making architecture but what is interesting is that there is a need out there today which is much more transversal and it's shared by everyone it's not just shared by architects and that transversality is why you and i are talking it's indicative you know Five years ago, I would be talking, I would be doing this, and I would be doing this with uh, an, a, a university in America. And we'd be talking about uh, digital technology, conceptual approaches, etc., which is fine. But it's not where the discussion is at today. And where the discussion is at today is actually being involved in these issues. That's why it's interesting that, you know, you're coming to us and we're able to talk about these things and we see our role in that uh, along with you know tons of other architects which i think is really important is and essential is that we can come up with creative solutions to a very challenging period in humanity's history for all sorts of reasons you know pl- climate uh, health you know we know all of the we know all of the issues and all of them are somehow interlinked. We know all of that now. It's not black and white. They're not divided. And the profession of architecture is also linked into all of that. And so we do have a role there. And I think what through the getting back to the issue is that through the C40 competitions, our our, our office saw that the role that you have as an architect is you're you're you are at a kind of crossroads between different disciplines. You do have the uh, that chance. And you, the point is you've got to recognise it. Now, to recognize that that's one step, but then to do something about that is another step. That doesn't, that's not necessarily anything new because the role of an architect has always been at a sort of crossroads. 
But in this case, um, the crossroads are a lot more complicated today. You know, there are a lot more people involved, which is a great thing. It's not a, it's not a negative thing. A lot more interests. And so when we do do these projects today, they're often with lots of different ideas and lots of, I mean, to give you an idea on Playol, I'm sort of not uh, going, I'm not steering around Tonga above, but give you an idea on uh, Playol, our meetings were literally in the numbers of 25, 30 people. And we would have those meetings at least once every two weeks for about six months. And there were meetings where you'd be listening a lot and then you would be proposing and we would be going through tons of iterations of the project of Playo before we literally got to the final thing that you see. Um, and we found that we really actually enjoyed working with those big groups of people. It's a challenge, you know, you go up and down with it, you know, it's not all, you know, glory of coming out with something at the end of it all. You know, you go through a lot, a, a, there's a lot of process. But I do think the role of the architect in there is a kind of synthesis, or ideally, he, she can be, they can be a synthesis in, in that. And we were on Playel. Um, and so we actually became very interested in that as a role. And it's something really, we hadn't really felt our capacity there before, just because the projects all of a sudden, as I said, became very, you know, a lot of things, you know, like the, the, the neighborhood, people living in the neighborhood wanted to be involved, quite rightly so. You know, the building was not just coming down and they, they would discover it uh, later. You know, just as an example, um, you know, and also, of course, all the, all the people developing, you know, interesting new technologies that we saw through the engineering group that we could bring in and they could come into the group and talk openly with, you know, other people within the group that had nothing to do with those kind of specialities. We saw this capacity. Well, anyway, getting back to Tonga above, it was an interesting case in point where we actually stepped beyond the C40 way of doing things. And in this case, I had met uh, a long time ago an artist called Uli Luizi, who's a very interesting artist working out of Tonga and producing some really wonderful work, which is very, in a way, traditionally based and also looking towards the future in new materials. Traditionally based in the sense that it works a lot with iteration, repetition, geometries that are directly taken from nature, but actually working through very complex geometries present or have historically been able to create these kind of wonderful uh, works of art, which are often also being functional. You sit on them, they were tougher cloths, you hang them on a wall, you know, you make a, an inside surface of a, of a of the house. So, you know, Uli carries through those traditions. So I got to know Uli, but at the same time, what's interesting also about Uli was that he has his own environmental foundation, uh, which is very much uh, about uh, uh, bringing to the public and bringing specifically to children um, the uh, their ability of potentially doing something about the planet that we're living on and what we're going into. And that's a big part of his life is devoted to that. So I, I met him, we talked in, in Paris about all of that. And out, out of that came this idea of doing a, a project together, which would be really a kind of a, a nomadic pavilion that would be able to be taken to different parts of the world and would get the children of the world involved in the issues, being able to bring adults in to discuss the issues, present the issues, and the kids would end up 
in a sense, uh, running the running the events. All of that linked back into the Tongan culture because why? Because Tonga is one of these places in the world where we're seeing climate change at the very edge of the change. We're seeing rising floodwaters starting to take over the, the city, the local capital of Tonga. And we're seeing stronger and stronger and stronger storm surge and strong horizontal storms running, ac- running across the islands. But not Tonga is just an island. There are many islands in the Pacific, let's say, that are threatened. The notion of being threatened is that the Tongan people, if they project the way that climate change is going, they will have to leave the capital and they will eventually have to leave the island and maybe find higher ground, but in a way relocate. And our whole thing, you know, talking to Uli was that, you know, this is madness. You know, the idea would be surely that we can keep uh, located the people of Tonga for the, as long as the the capital is concerned, keep them located around the lagoon, which they are on today, uh, but actually build up, create a new project, building up from the existing lagoon, which will be uh, existing landscape, which will be eventually flooded and creating a new capital. So the project is proposing a kind of topographic infrastructural landscape, which in a sense, both has a combination of traditional buildings which would be made the way they are today in many ways, but we're just building them on a higher level, as well as uh, using this new infrastructure as a as a means of also creating a city within the you know the in a way the volume this new volume. So the images that you know I hope you can share with your viewers anyway are the images of a projection of what we think it could look like. What we're looking at really are flyovers or fly-throughs of a three-dimensional world for the moment, which is modeled and imagined. Of course, it's a first pass. It's a, of course, it's a first, in a way, imaginary city. That, to be, de- to be developed, of course, has to go through you know, thousands of iterations and a lot more fine, careful development. But the idea here is that we're trying to combine three things. We're looking at the problem at hand, which is the, the fact that we will have to build up from the capital if we want to stay there. We want to keep building this new city around the lagoon. So the city also becomes a haven or a harbor on a new sea level. And uh, then combined with a second piece and a third piece, the second piece that we, uh, in working on this idea, we became very interested in coral reefs and coral structures. And these have been structures from nature, which have always interested our office. Here, the coral thing became very interesting because of course, coral reefs have this ability of protection and slowing down fluid movements and building over time, they're evolutive, you know, obviously if they're not destroyed <laughs> by other factors. <laughs> but the point is, as a metaphor, very, very interesting. And if you go into the biomimetic structures of these, they're extremely interesting in terms of repelling, uh, building up very, very strong structures and therefore repelling uh, a lot of strong water or storm surge. We found that that was probably one of the more interesting directions to go in. And then, of course, the third one being that we're very compelled by the idea of also the language, the tapa motifs, 
uh, and uh, the Tongan motifs, which all have deep meanings within their culture. You know, you could call on one level, on a very superficial level, we could say they're patterns, but on another, or motifs. But it's true that if you go into those, they, they all have incredibly rich meaning anyway. The, the point is that combining all of, all of those, let's say, three aspects, we think we can make something which is quite interesting. In order for this project to become a reality over time, would the buildings on the ground level in this new Tongan landscape and new Tongan capital, would they have to be redesigned from the ground up in order to, for example, if the sea levels rose and entered the the ground of uh, the Tongan capital, would the buildings need to be redesigned in order to allow the the sea to safely pass through and not interfere with, with what is happening above? Well, it's interesting. Yeah, what, what's interesting, what we're thinking would be the most uh, viable effort is to actually take the uh, structures and move them up onto these new platforms that we're proposing. A lot of the platforms are going to be fixed and anchored into the cityscape. So it's like, in a way, taking the memory of the city and building up from it as a kind of piece of infrastructure but the buildings themselves go up with it. They're not going to stay down where they were. And in some cases, we'll lose those buildings, of course. You know, so it depends. It, there's a whole process that one will have to go through. It sounds really interesting. It's such an interesting project to see how that will develop over time. Yeah, it's trying to. Yeah, it's an in, it, it's an exciting one, and we uh, we hope that um, and uh, we're being invited to Glasgow to the COP26 this year. And we hope to present a piece of the new city along with uh, a virtual reality vision of the new city. And we hope to do that down near the River Clyde during the two-week period of the COP26 so that it will be very much available for people to come and visit and look at the piece. Of course, we hope COVID, COVID willing uh, yeah, this, all this this happens, but <clears throat> we hope that we can at least get a virtual reality model up and accessible if there are problems on that level. But that's a that's a very exciting, like first uh, chance in which we can start to show the project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I also read that your your firm was heavily involved or initiated the the French chapter of the architects yep. declare climate and ecological emergency. And I was interested just to hear a bit about how you initiated it and what would be your expectations or, or hopes for this, this agreement and how it will transpire into the future. I think it's a really an amazing, amazing initiative. And uh, I met in Oslo where I was there for a climate change conference in Oslo uh, about a year and a half ago and was introduced uh, by uh, people within the city of Paris that were there. And they introduced me to the, uh, to the group, the, the English part of the group. And we got on really well. And the big joke between us was that, you know, what, where is France in all of this? You know, the, the Brits are doing this, you know, the New Zealanders are starting to get their thing together. And, and of course, it was like coming back to Paris and, 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 uh, and realizing that we just absolutely had to push on this because it was such, such an incredibly important initiative. And so it was really thrilling for us to kind of, we, what we did essentially was contact uh, two other offices and, uh, and ask them if they'd be interested. And they were, and we uh, quickly founded the French part. And we've had it, we've been trying to initiate a number of moves here within France on uh, local rules and regulations, because a lot of, I think a lot of what they're, what they're 
about, which is really a kind of at the heart of the matter as well, as an architect, you know, alone, you can only do so much. And, you know, I, the projects that I've been showing you are, of course, an architecture office somehow, not alone, but working with a lot of other people, which is where we realize the importance of working really horizontally right across and working with big groups of people. If we wanted to change anything, that was absolutely vital. But here, what's interesting in this initiative and originally coming out of England, which we thought was really fantastic by some really exciting individuals was that they realized at some point that you cannot, we cannot change much until we also change legislation. And that's been one of the biggest walls, you know, in trying to bring about change through changing legislation. And I think all of these, all of these groups are, are in their own countries are trying to do that. Um, certainly at a kind of a, at a French level, we're very interested in, we're, you know, in the moment we're discussing different initiatives to try and bring about certain legislation changes, but, uh, but they're, they're slow. France doesn't have the greatest history for the moment on meeting climate challenge. Although ironically, it, it, the initiation of the, by, in the Paris conference was massive, you know, bringing everyone together around the world to sign a document that we would meet this challenge together, you know, was remarkable. And we were all, of course, worried that it, we would lose it. And of course, thank God, under the change within the American system, now you have a push back into, you know, uh, into trying to meet the, uh, trying to meet the agreement. And that's been a huge breath of fresh air. But still, that fight has been ongoing and it hasn't dropped. Even during, you know, four or five years of a very tough administration policy within America. Now that's changed. Now it's come back into some level of, um, you know, uh, responsibility. So I think, you know, we're going to be seeing some interesting changes in, through legislation. And I hope also the French will be, you know, that it picks up speed because France tend to be dragging their feet much more slowly and legislation isn't moving fast enough. And uh, one of the more disappointing things here recently, we had an incredible initiative by the, the public, you know, were brought into the government to initiate, you know, 120 ways of meeting climate change. And I think there's only 30 of these, you know, anywhere, a third or, or a fourth of those ideas uh, were seriously taken on board to be voted uh, in, into policy. Um, that's already pretty great, but you know, that's, you can, you get a, you get an idea from that, the sort of the reticence at, at the level of government in order to change things very, very slow, you know, so, and, and too slow. So anyway, the point is that this, the, 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 the idea of putting together, um, a, a French group, you know, of course now there's more and more offices, there's hundreds of offices now in France that have joined us. And, um, you know, the more, the more, the stronger we are, and the, the heart of that matter is legislation. It's trying to overturn. You know, there's a, there's a lot there's a lot of work to be done. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I just I've got a couple of questions, just some general questions, and one of them would be, what advice would you give to young architects who are eager to opt for more sustainable solutions, or or eager to enter in the world of creating sustainably focused buildings? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I've found, you know, like over a long period of time, I've sort of come to this. So it's, you know, probably a bit slow in this in this 
conclusion, but I th there's no conclusions. It's just part of an ongoing thing. But I think that um, you know a project like Tonga Above is actually very interesting because it shows you that architects can also jump in and actually pick up initiatives, um, not on their own, but actually joining forces with other creatives and to propose. You know, we didn't. You know, with Uli, we didn't wait for the government to come to us. We didn't wait for a competition to be uh, proposing this as a new scheme or a new method, um, which is very exciting with the C40 group. I think it's an extraordinary initiative, an ongoing initiative. But the the one where we did, where we came to it, the, the, it was a kind of conclusion, mutual conclusion that why not? Why not jump in and propose? We've always seen the project is somehow having a certain utopic quality, but actually I tend to call it the utopic real project. So I don't think any project today is really that utopic. I think we're seeing most of utopia has actually been imaginable and, and to a certain degree is realizable throughout history. So um, I think what you're looking at here are kind of initiatives that I think, you know, I would, and what can I say? I, I think if you're a young designer and you're interested in sustainable issues and you're, you know, wanting to, turn things around, uh, you know, you're coming into a world which uh, is in, has incredible challenges. I think in order to meet those challenges, you need to come up to them. Uh, and you can't uh, wait for those challenges to come to you. So you do need to go out a little bit like we, what we did with Tonga. You do need to go out and look for where the problem issues are and try and actually come up with responses yourself with groups of people, try and initiate them. You know, look for them. You know, I do think it's a kind of a proactive vision of, uh, you know, I think it's that sort of proactive. It's almost a kind of a way of you can see that Greenpeace has had it for years. You know, this, you know, 50 years or how long the, the organization has existed. It's a remarkable organization of seeing where the problems are and going and putting the spotlight on them and attracting attention to them and trying to change things around. They're trying to bring the world's attention. I think architects do have a role there. It's not radical. It's just actually working with what's there. And, you know, in a way, focusing on those big challenges, I think is really important today. I think the idea of coming through a kind of traditional education, you know, it doesn't somehow, for me, you know, after kind of a number of years of these sort of experiences, I can see, I think we can move a lot faster than the profession. And I think we can move a lot more faster and a lot more creatively uh, when we're young as well. And I think it's also for the youth of the world to actually pick up those challenges. They shouldn't wait. You know, they're all in front of them and they're incredible challenges. And I would say they're challenges that you can be really creative with. It's not a case of being less creative. I would say, ironically, I think you can be more creative just because they are of the most pressing importance of this epoch, this period. So, of course, they have resonance. They have meaning. And I think when architecture or, or urban issues or creativity sort of takes off, it's also when it has somehow, it, it has meaning, it has reason to exist. And when I say take off, I mean, it, when it's, it's somehow useful. So that's why I think though, in that area, I think, you know, young designers, creatives coming up, I think that's, that's where you should be heading. And what would be your, your dream environmentally focused architectural brief? And do you have one? 
<laughs> what would you like to work on? What would be your, your dream brief? Yeah, it's interesting. It's really funny this because I tend to think that, I mean, ironically, a project in a way like working on the Tonga Above thing is a sort of dream brief in a way. It's a strange one to say, but I, I'm someone that's really not uh, in a way, I, I would like to think of as dreamer, but I'm not really so much of a dreamer. I'm very interested in taking kind of stuff that's sort of in front of me and working with it. I tend to be more there. Um, and, uh, and that's why the Tonga thing ex excites me tremendously. And I sort of found in the long run that I'm, if I'm dreaming too far, something never really happens. Do you know what I mean? I know. <laughs> and uh, I found, I tend to have found that the dreams are somehow right in front of me. So they're not a projection so much as a kind of working with the reality. I found more and more to be where the dream is. And so a project in a way like Tonga Above is a kind of, is a dream. I mean, for the moment, it's a dream, of course, because it doesn't exist, but it exists on, uh, as a virtual uh, model and it exists as a discourse and it exists as a, what we could imagine it could be like. And that's, you're sure that's part of the dream, you know, so that's why it's a dream for the moment and a kind of very interesting dream and probably the best example of a dream that I could give you right now. And finally, um, before we wrap up, are there any last words you'd like to say to, to listeners? Is there anything I've missed that you'd like to, to say or any final words you'd like to depart the interview on? No, I think, the, I think maybe the departure was the point just before the question on dreaming. I think the, the, the good departure point is to, is to say that the, the, those kinds of projects that are there today, are the very, the very important ones are the very challenging ones, you know, and they're the, they're the tough ones right in front of us. And they're, they are actually the, they are the most exciting ones too. Although the exciting, I don't mean it in a, you know, like, like it's not a, it's not an obviously exciting thing, but it's exciting because they're often very real, I think. And I think, and so that's why I think an exciting, an interesting moment to leave on would be, you know, to come back to that second to last question or the second to last answer that I tried to give, which was very much saying uh, as creatives, where I think we should be trying, where we should be putting our energy and how we can potentially go out and proactively try and find these projects, you know, that we shouldn't be necessarily waiting, but actually, you know, um, trying to find the projects and trying to come up with the responses, coming back to this word of, um, of uh, you know, inventing answers. I think that's uh, this notion of coming up with trying to meet the challenge. And I mentioned it the other day in another interview, but it was sort of related to this notion, this notion of the word hope, um, because there's so much negativity right now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, and I think we should really be very careful about that. You know, I think we need to be totally aware of all of the issues and the problems and what we're going through in the world more than ever and we are i think but at the same time we need to be creating also answers and coming up with answers and coming and and coming up to the challenge and i think that's i think that's a really good point to leave on you know that we need to be as a human race adapting and trying to come up with answers and it is related to this word of this word of hope right that we, there are there are ways I think of adapting to living on this planet. We probably will go through more tougher periods somehow, 
to get there. But, you know, and of course, one of the big challenges is, of our times is, is the climate. And so that's what we should be all heading toward, meeting the challenge. You know, I think we, we have a huge role there uh, as creatives on this planet. And, um, you know, the challenge, the challenge is there. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Green Canvas. In two weeks, we'll be back with the next episode. In the meantime, if you think this is a podcast a friend of yours will enjoy, we would love for you to share it with them or leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us know what you think and others to find the show. And feel free to get in touch with us anytime at hello at greencanvaspodcast.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the episode or any recommendations and questions you may have for future guests. Thank you again, and I hope you have a great day.